Welcome to What's the Data Point, a podcast brought to you by Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. Find out more about our organizations online at GothamGazette.com and CBCNY.org. You're with Maria Doulis and Ben Max, and today we're joined by New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, who was one of our early guests when we launched the podcast last year. The Comptroller recently addressed CBC and covered a broad range of topics, including the state budget, the city budget and economy, and risk of the state and city from the federal government. We'll play those remarks for you in a second. But first, our data point is 17%. The increase in the average bonus paid by the securities industry, more colloquially called Wall Street, in 2017. This brings the average bonus to more than $161,000. Wall Street profits were also up strongly in 2017, and so was employment. However, employment is still 6% below the pre-recession level of 188900 These figures are from a report on Wall Street the Comptroller's Office is releasing today, and the Comptroller addressed the implications of changes on Wall Street for New York's economy, among other things. Listen in now, then stay tuned for a Q&A that touches on the state budget, response to federal tax cuts, activism in the pension funds, and more. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you. As we well know, New York and our entire nation were thrust into an economic upheaval. Our state lost hundreds of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in tax revenue at all levels of government. Recovery back then certainly was not a foregone conclusion. But recover we did. Today, a decade after being lashed repeatedly by relentless economic winds, the city and state economies certainly are much improved. While we still have significant work to do to bring full economic recovery to many of our upstate regions, our economy is stronger than it has been in some time. While we continue to see positive economic signs, clearly there are many challenges ahead. And that's certainly where I'd like to focus uh, my comments, looking at the city, the state economies and finances, uh, the potential impact of budget and policy headwinds coming out of the administration in Washington are certainly areas of concern that we have in the state controller's office. So let me start with an important part of the city's economy, Wall Street. It's one of the key economic drivers for our city economy. Responsible, we estimate, for 6% of all city tax collections. And very important for New York State as well, accounting for 18% of state tax collections. Now, because I have such a fond feeling for CBC as my favorite non-governmental fiscal watchdog, this morning I want to give you an inside preview, you're all sworn to secrecy, of my office's annual Wall Street bonus report. You know we do that every year, and we're actually going to be releasing it on Monday. But I told the press people I had to give something, you know, timely and new, so I'll give you some of it. The headline is a simple one and probably no surprise to anybody in the room. Wall Street had a great year in 2017. Pre-tax profits for the broker-dealer operations of the New York Stock Exchange member firms rose by 42% in 2017, after increasing by 21% in 2016. Profits totaled $24.5 billion in 2017, the highest level since 2010, driven by higher revenues. Each year, as you know, Our office estimates bonuses for the securities industry employees working in New York City. Our estimate includes cash bonuses for the current year and bonuses deferred from prior years that have been cashed in. For 2017, I estimate that the average bonus for securities industry employees who work in New York City increased by 17%. Details related to that figure which, as I said, we have not made public, will be included in our announcement on Monday. But certainly seeing that it's a 17% increase in bonuses, uh, quite a jump higher than we had first anticipated. Despite job gains in recent years, the securities industry in New York City is still 6% smaller by headcount than before the financial crisis, while the rest of the private sector has grown by some 23%. So that dynamic that we've seen now, you know, for a number of years is that Wall Street certainly has recovered from the depths of the recession in those, those early years of 08 and 09 and so on. We're seeing profits go up for various reasons, including um, litigation and some of the settlement costs have been going down as all that has been worked through uh, the system. But 
this industry, which when you look at the previous two recessions and how we got out of it, um, certainly looking at the dot-com bubble burst and 9-11, and Wall Street securities industry often led the way in terms of job creation, uh, different with this post-recessionary time. In fact, Wall Street, uh, as I said, is smaller than it was uh, 10 years ago. And, and part of how profits have stayed up is that headcount has been kept down. And the use of technology uh, certainly is a piece of that, more productivity. And you know, we did see a slight decrease in jobs for last year, but we did have, for the couple of years prior to that, there seemed to be hiring again. A lot of that hiring happened to be in the area of compliance. No surprise, that seemed to be the growth area with many of the firms. So while the securities industry drove, uh, drove job growth and prior expansions, the current expansion is being driven by other sectors of the economy, particularly healthcare, business services, and when we say business services, we particularly are speaking about the tech and media companies, and tourism-related businesses related to hospitality, the restaurant industry. Last September, we reported, we, we did a report on employment in New York City, and we reported that the tech sector in New York City had increased by 57% between 2010 and 2016, some uh, almost 47,000 jobs, growing more than three times faster than the rest of the private sector. We released a report on employment trends in the city that found that job growth in the five boroughs has outpaced the nation and New York State since the end of the recession. Job growth in New York City is now more geographically dispersed and diversified than at any time in the past 40 years. Nearly half of the city's job gains since 2009 have been in the boroughs outside of Manhattan. That's the largest share since at least 1975. Due to record job growth and a tightening labor market, the city's unemployment rate declined to 4.5% in 2017, the lowest level since the current data series was introduced 41 years earlier. According to the State Department of Labor, the city has added 715,000 jobs since the recession ended in 2009, the largest and longest recovery in the city in the post-World War II period. The number of jobs in the city reached a record of more than 4.4 million in 2017. That's more than 600,000 jobs above the pre-recession level. Really very impressive numbers. While job growth has slowed over the past three years, the city still added an impressive 81,000 jobs in 2017. The rapid growth in the workforce has stimulated office construction. The city has added more than 38 million square feet of office space between 2001 and 2017. Of that amount, more than half was added just during the past six years. As we all can appreciate, a more diversified economy, less dependent on one industry for economic growth, helps insulate the city against cyclical downturns. Like the city economy, New York City's finances are also on firmer ground. Two weeks ago, our office released an assessment of the mayor's preliminary executive budget for the fiscal year 2019. The city projects a surplus of $2.6 billion for 2018, which will be used to balance the 2019 budget. The surplus results from a reduction in unneeded reserves in the current year and a citywide savings program. While the city projects budget gaps for fiscal years 2020 through 2022, they are relatively small as a share of city fund revenues and manageable under current conditions. However, as we always point out, there are budgetary risks to manage over the next few years, and certainly concern again about developments at the national level. The projected gaps, for example, do not reflect the potential impact of state and federal actions or what will be the impact of the next round of collective bargaining with the unions. To the city's credit, it has replenished the Retiree Health Benefits Trust that was drawn down during the prior administration to manage through the very difficult times of the Great Recession. The mayor has added funds to the trust every year, and we expect the administration will continue this practice. The trust has grown from $1.4 billion in fiscal year 2013 to more than $4.3 billion, the largest amount ever. In addition, the city has increased the annual general reserve from $300 million to $1 billion, 
and has created a $250 million capital stabilization reserve. The city has also resumed the process of identifying opportunities for savings, which will take on added importance during times of fiscal stress. While the citywide savings program relies heavily on savings from debt service, reestimates, and funding shifts, the mayor has indicated that he will expand the program in the spring with the release of his executive budget. Given the threat of federal budget cuts and inevitable changes in the business cycle, it is in the city's best interest to increase its reserves and the citywide savings program. While the city's finances are in relatively good shape, the MTA, NYCHA, and the Health and Hospitals Corporation each face serious managerial and financial challenges that could threaten the city's economy and ultimately the city budget. Recent reports from my office have demonstrated the problems facing the MTA. I suspect we have personal testimony in the room that would add to that. And some of you saw our most recent report on Long Island Railroad on-time performance. Uh, 2017 was uh, the worst year in terms of performance in 18 years. Well, turning to the state budget, as you know, the state has uh, just more than a week before the start of a new fiscal year. The legislature and the governor are continuing negotiations as we speak. As final decisions are made on the new state budget, it's important to keep in mind the uncertain revenue outlook, continuing risk to federal aid, and the need for checks and balances over the use of public dollars. Our last monthly cash report, you know, we, we do a cash report on, on where the state finances are at every month. Our, our most recent one was issued last week, showed that total tax collections through February were up by $5.4 billion, or 8% from the same period a year earlier, largely because of stronger personal income tax collections. While city and state tax collections in recent months have been strong, there is also reason for caution moving forward. Those of you that follow our cash reports, you know that from much of this fiscal year, keep in mind the state's fiscal year goes till April 1st, we were coming up short. The revenue was not coming in as projected, and the projections kept getting lowered. What happened as uh, everything was sorted out in Washington with federal tax reform, we saw a tremendous amount of activity starting in December. So whereas the year had been lagging, we saw this surge of tax collections that have continued into the, into the final quarter of our fiscal year. Uh, but we do believe that's more of a timing question that, that has started to settle out and probably will settle out as we move forward. It does show that in terms of, of revenue, though, there's more, been more volatility uh, than we've had for a long time in terms of looking at our revenue projections. When we look at the governor's executive budget, uh, the proposal for 2018-19 would increase state aid to education to New York City by $248 million in fiscal year 2019. While this is less than assumed in the city's financial plan, both houses of the legislature have proposed education funding above the level in the executive budget, and enacted state budgets historically include more education funding than initially proposed by the governor. When we talk about the impact of the state budget, there are many areas that raise concern for the city. There are state actions that are being proposed that would cap or reduce state reimbursement for a number of social service and education programs. The city's budget would also be adversely impacted by state actions approved in prior years that are scheduled to take effect in 2019. Taken together, these state actions could increase the city's operating costs by a net of $500 million in fiscal year 2019. The proposed state budget also includes items that would require the city to fully fund the capital costs of the New York City Transit, which operates the subway and bus system, and match the state's capital contribution to the MTA's subway action plan. While not part of the governor's budget proposal, the city has come under increasing pressure to contribute operating funds to that subway action plan. Actions in Washington are also impacting our state and city budgets. As we all know, in the CBC's report earlier this week highlighted, the recently enacted federal tax changes have significant implications for New Yorkers. The $10,000 cap on New Yorkers' federal itemized deductions for state and local taxes means that even with lower tax rates, some taxpayers will pay more in federal taxes. This change would also increase New Yorkers' state tax liabilities by approximately $400 million annually and would increase liability for some city taxpayers as well. 
Now, you know the governor has proposed eliminating this automatic flow-through at the state level, which also would affect the city's tax structure. Both houses of the legislature have agreed in their one-house bills, although obviously nothing is final until the budget is uh, adopted. I know CBC has expressed concern that the federal cap on state and local tax deductions will make New York less competitive for residents and businesses, particularly because of the impact on high-income earners who make up large proportions of our city and state tax bases. I share that concern, but I, I would also urge that we keep in mind the impact on residents who are not among the highest income New Yorkers, but may still see their overall tax burden rise because of the federal changes, especially in many downstate suburban communities. High property taxes already make it difficult for many families and individuals to afford a home and the cost of living in New York. My Long Island friends know $10,000 on, on a property tax bill is next to nothing almost anywhere on the island. So beyond deductibility of state and local taxes, other issues resulting from flow-through impacts of the federal tax changes remain to be decided for the state and for the city. The governor has also proposed authorizing school districts, counties, and New York City to create charitable funds, one for education, one for health care, that would allow taxpayers to reduce their tax liability by taking deductions for donations to such funds. The executive budget would also establish a new employer compensation expense tax or payroll tax that could help mitigate the impact of the federal changes. While the assembly has accepted both measures as part of their one house budget proposal, the Senate has expressed opposition to both of these concepts. It's unclear at this point whether these two proposals will be included in the final enacted budget. Now, we haven't weighed into that debate in terms of expressing an opinion on those options, but I uh, do uh, share CBC's concern that any changes to state law must preserve full transparency, accountability, and oversight as to how tax revenues are raised and spent. We also agree that it's essential to make sure we fully assess the potential implications of any change that may be made. And some of this may become a question of timing. Very complicated questions here needs not to be rushed and to be considered in a thoughtful way. With regard to the proposed payroll tax, for example, the executive budget language provides that the decision to participate in this program would be made by the employer. Yet it's unclear whether some employees might in fact be disadvantaged in cases where the employers will opt in and make that choice. In our analysis of the state's revenues and budget, I've said that the full effects of the federal tax changes may not be known for some time, an assessment that I believe CBC shares. Among other implications of this, we believe it suggests the need for caution in our revenue projections. Of course, when we talk about the impacts of federal changes, we're also concerned about on the spending side, what's happening with the federal budget. Congressional action in late December addressed immediate threats to certain funding, such as that for the Children's Health Insurance Program. The President and some in Congress had called for changes to Medicaid and other programs that would curtail federal assistance to New York and really hurt the neediest in New York. Congress, as you know, just within the past uh, couple of days, past few hours, has acted on a broad funding package for the remaining of the federal fiscal year. Early indications are that this package will preserve and actually in some cases increase important funding in many areas. But this just was accomplished. We all need to look at the details and see exactly what the impact of those decisions in Washington will be for us here in New York. The risk, though, as we move forward of federal aid reductions that could hurt our city and state budgets has not gone away by any means. This is a continuing area of concern. In response to potential federal budget cuts, this year's state budget would continue and broaden the provision included in last year's budget, under which the director of the budget could cut planned spending if certain federal assistance is reduced by $850 million or more. Other proposals would provide additional expansions of executive authority. One provision would authorize the budget director to uniformly reduce certain local assistance spending by up to 3% without further action by the legislature if projected tax receipts are reduced by more than $500 million from the executive budget projection. School aid, Medicaid, and certain other programs would be exempt from this provision. 
I know CBC has urged the legislature to reject some of these provisions. Both the Senate and the Assembly have done so in their one-house budget proposals. While these and other provisions may provide flexibility in managing the state budget, they leave uncertainty as to how their use might affect New York City, other local governments, nonprofits, state agencies, and individual New Yorkers. My office's report on the executive budget raised several other concerns about issues of transparency, accountability, and oversight of state spending. Some of these are concerns we've raised in previous budget reports as well, including concerns about out-year budget gaps, declining debt capacity under New York statutory debt limits. How should the state address the inevitable budgetary risks and uncertainties? One step where we need to do a better job is to strengthen budget reserves. New York's rainy day reserves are not as large as those in many other states, and the last deposit to the state's statutory rainy day reserves was three years ago. I have proposed legislation that would generally require deposits to the rainy day reserve fund and or the debt reduction reserve fund in years when the state experiences a cash surplus. I'm very pleased and I commend CBC that you have also called attention to this issue of not adequately funded reserves in New York State. It's essential that we have a full and accurate picture as well of the state spending, including the level of year-to-year -year increases. Our review of the executive budget concluded after reflecting proposed movement of certain spending off budget and other factors, state operating fund spending in the coming year would increase by more than 4%, rather than 1.9%, as indicated by the division of the budget. Here again, CBC's analysis and ours reached a similar conclusion. You beat us to the punch last year on the number. We kind of implied it. And I said to Bob, how come CBC puts a number in? We got to do that too. But we're on the same page on that one. And I was very pleased that many who have been writing about what's happening at the state level have cited your number and our number now as well in looking at the budget proposal this year. Any cuts to federal programs obviously would exacerbate a challenging fiscal imbalance that already exists between New York State and Washington. And, you know, and when I've talked about the, the issue of the impact of the federal budget, I try to explain to folks it, it's, in the, it's in a broader context of the relationship between New York and Washington that's been going on for a long time. And many of you remember when Senator Moynihan uh, was in office, he would do, uh, when it was every year, every other year, the balance of payments, how much money New York sends to Washington versus what we get back. But we were asked to do a version of that report, and we've done it uh, twice now. Uh, when we first put out the report, uh, I guess about four years ago, we found that for every dollar that New York sends to Washington, we get 84 cents back. We updated those uh, numbers uh, using 2015 figures, and uh, it was, uh, it was, I'm sorry, reversed it. When we did it a few years ago, it was 91 cents for every dollar that we sent. We updated it about two years ago, and it was down to 84 cents for every dollar. This is all before the current administration. So, so if our trend was 91 cents for every dollar down to 84 cents for every dollar before the current actions, you could be sure that trend is going to continue to go in a direction that's hurtful to us in New York. New York is a wealthy state, and, and probably under any scenario, we would always uh, send more than we would get back. But it is a concern that we're getting back less and less. The, the average for states for every dollar that they send to Washington is that they get back a dollar and 18 cents. So most states actually are net gainers. New York is definitely a net loser. And the concern is, will that trend uh, worsen? And my suspicion is that it will. So our city and state economies and finances are on more solid ground they've been in, albeit with changes and challenges and uncertainties that lie ahead, much of it driven from what comes out of Washington. Uh, one area of strength, uh, from my point of view, uh, is our state pension fund. Uh, I say that despite what happened yesterday with the stock market. Obviously, these comments were written before that, but one day, one day alone doesn't drive our point of view on where our pension fund is at. You know, one of the first things that Bill Thompson told me, he said, Tom, when you're a trustee for a pension fund, you can't just look at the markets every day. Uh, you, we're not day traders, we're in it for the long term. So just to give you a sense as to where we're at, as of December 31st, our pension fund had an estimated value of $209.1 billion. That's the highest level we've been at. 
just to give you a, a context, uh, when the Great Recession hit and the markets tanked, we went from about $155 billion down to about $109 billion in one year. We lost 26% value in one year. Pension funds were not immune from uh, the market collapse. So here we are so many years later, uh, not only 100 million more uh, as of the end of the calendar year, but keep in mind, last year alone, we paid out about $11.5 billion in benefits. So we're, we're paying out a, a big chunk of money in benefits every year, a growing amount, and yet you know the fund has still been able to grow. We're very pleased that, unlike so many of the pension funds that you read about, Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, they're facing difficulties largely because of short-sighted practices that were uh, implemented during the good times. Short the contributions to the pension fund, the economy's going well, it will, it'll all catch up at some point. Then you come to a year like 08 and 09, the markets tank, you're already underfunded, then you really lose a big percentage of your portfolio, and many of those pension funds are still at a, at a condition of very, being very poorly funded. I think Illinois is about 45% funded. One wonders how they will ever dig out from under that. Fitch, Fitch, Moody's, Standard, and Poor's have upgraded the state's general obligation bond ratings, citing an improved economy, an improved budget picture, and the third piece of it that I don't think got as much attention is that in New York, we have a well-funded state pension plan. So making it easier for New York from a cost perspective when we borrow money, that's something that benefits all New Yorkers to have our pension fund in strong shape. And while it's great to talk about how big we are, we're the third largest in the nation, What's more important is how well-funded are we? And the Pew Research Center uh, every year does a ranking of the 50 states. In last year's ranking, New York came in uh, number three out of the 50 states. Our assets versus our liabilities were about 95% funded, virtually a fully funded plan. We were beat out by uh, Wisconsin and uh, South Dakota. Wisconsin has a slightly different model. When they, when they miss their mark for investment return, they actually can adjust benefits downward. That's not something that we do. What they're doing in South Dakota, I don't know. But Bill Thompson, if you'd like a f field trip, I, would be, I will designate you as my, uh, well, it's, it's springtime. South Dakota can't be that bad in springtime. <laughs> but we're, we're proud of, of our funded status. And I, you know, I, when I spoke to the school boards last night up in Glens Falls, because you know, the employers always have the pressure of the rates. The rates went up significantly after the markets collapsed because we're very concerned about our funded status. For five years now, we've been reducing the contribution rate as the returns have come back. But I did explain to them, you know, at the end of the day as trustee, my obligation is to make sure the, the fund is well-funded. And while we are sensitive to our government employers and we know that the contribution rate has an impact on them, the bottom line for me is, you know, are we maintaining our strong funded status? We want to get to as close to that 100% figure as we can and maintain it there. So we won't know till the end of our... Fiscal year, March 31st, I know there are a lot of religious holidays coming up, so wherever you're worshiping, do an extra prayer or light a candle for me as trustee of the state pension. But March 31st can't be like yesterday. It's got to be a strong day, uh, so we, we end up on a, on a positive note. I think part of why we believe our pension fund is so strong is that we've redoubled our, our efforts to invest money in New York State. We have a lot of money. It's invested globally, and much of the money is... Uh, is through index funds and passive investment of public equities. But that being said, we do try to be diversified within the limits of the law, so we certainly have money invested in alternative investments as well. And, and actually, it's been in, in, in some of the other space where we tried to do some more creative efforts. We have something called our in-state private equity investment program, which is geared to entrepreneurs who are starting up a business and expanding business in New York State or someone who wants to relocate from another state, if they are looking for an equity partner, we make this money available. We have uh, $1.6 billion that we've allocated to the in-state program. Why? We want to make money for the fund. It's not an economic development program. But if we could find these opportunities within the state and not only grow the fund, but grow employment opportunities, especially in some of the upstate communities, we uh, very much like that win-win proposition. Uh, we've invested uh, about $1 billion of that amount so far in 361 New York businesses all across the state. Uh, in the past few years, we've seen tremendous activity 
particularly on the early stage venture side. We don't have a lot in venture capital, but we do have some. And we've been very bullish on the New York City economy, obviously reflecting my earlier comments. Uh, we have invested in 277 companies in New York City. 226 of those were tech-related. So it's interesting, because some of these investments may be of a smaller amount, but because there's such an interest for early-stage investment, that seed capital, uh, there's been so much activity that we've seen, not just in Manhattan, I might add, uh, but in Brooklyn and in uh, parts of Queens as well. So New York becoming a, a uh, tech center uh, is, is part of a process that we're, I'm very proud that our pension fund in ways that people may, may not realize, we're part of that growth experience as well. So we're going to continue to look for investment opportunities, first and foremost, to keep our pension fund strong. But if we can do more to build up the city and state economy, we certainly want to do that. So to wrap up, uh, 10 years after the start of the Great Recession, 10 years after my last visit with you, I hope those two were not coincidental and that this won't start something bad. <laughs> You'll never invite me back. We see a strong city economy and a state economy as well that is strong. Weak spots in certain regions of the state, but overall, and frankly, largely driven by the strength of New York City, New York State certainly uh, is in much better shape than it's been in a long time. Yet uncertainty in both budget and policy choices that will emanate from decisions being made in Washington threatens to undercut the momentum that we've seen in recent years, both at the city level and across the state. It's worth noting that the current economic expansion is among the longest in modern history. At some point, it is going to come to an end, and we need to be prepared. Now more than ever, we need to focus on policies that ensure balanced budgets and sound, sustainable fiscal practices. In order for us to do that, we need CBC and other responsible independent monitors to continue to be important voices in the process. As in the past, I look forward to continuing to work with CBC and partnering with you whenever we can to ensure that the city and the state budgets are, in st are strong in the short term and sustainable and secure for the long term. Thanks for joining us for a few minutes for uh, What's the Data Point? Thanks, Ben. Um, so, uh, Maria, do you want to start off uh, a few questions for the controller after his remarks? Sure. So we are about a week away from a budget being adopted, if it happens on time. Um, you know, give us your assessment of the executive budget proposal, where you think it is, and particularly let's talk about something that CBC has opined on recently, which is the level of reserves. Yeah. So we've said that they seem very inadequate. We recently did a piece comparing to California. Um, and one of the, besides the fact that California has a higher level of reserves, one of the things we recommended was the California approach in that they have a mandatory mechanism for making the deposits to reserves. What are your thoughts about the level of reserves, how to best do it, and the budget more generally? Yeah. I mean, certainly, it, I'll start with the, the latter part of the question. New York is behind in terms of how we, we manage our reserves. Uh, we, we haven't put the money aside when we've had the opportunity to do it. And, you know, there is that concern, this business cycle that has been very strong, at some point it's going to come to an end, and it's going to make it more difficult to balance our budgets. So, you know, when we've talked about the city's finances, they've done a better job of putting money into reserves. The state hasn't. The optimum would be to have a constitutional requirement. That's very hard to do in this state, to amend the state constitution. So something statutory uh, would, would probably be the easiest way to get it done, if easy is the right word to get anything like this done. And uh, obviously, it would have been beneficial from the start of the budget process if increasing the reserves was part of the executive budget proposal. You know, so what we see now is the budget process is coming to a conclusion. You had the revenue forecast of uh, about two weeks ago that showed uh, any, uh, upwards of $750 million had been identified that wasn't in the initial budget proposal. I think that that will make it a little easier for the legislature and the governor to come to an agreement on a budget. School aid is always a contentious item, both for the city and for the state as well. The governor's proposal was for $769 million increase, about 3% less than the increase the past couple of years. Traditionally, the legislature adds more. Certainly some of that money, if not a big piece of it, will go towards education. It could be an opportunity as well to put more money into reserves than was included in the executive budget proposal. My guess is, given all the politics of the moment and this being an election year, 
that money will more likely go into spending programs rather than, than the reserves. But we, we echo in the Controls Office the concerns you've identified with the inadequacy of the reserves for New York State. And speaking of spending, you indicated in your remarks, and this is in line, as you said, with C- what CBC looks at, that um, because of some um, gimmicks and some different ways of doing things in the, in the executive budget, uh, the spending growth project- projection is actually more at about 4%. Yeah. Um, the state has been facing, you know, somewhat difficult fiscal picture. I don't know how you'd characterize it, but, you know, with, with the, the deficit uh, need to be closed. What's your general assessment of how the executive budget um, sort of addressed that, that challenge, and what are your concerns? Well, I, you know, I, th- I think it would be fair to say that, that um, this administration, Governor Cuomo, has certainly been a stronger fiscal steward on managing the state budget uh, in recent years, and that's why we've had better budgets. And the legislature, by and large, has, has worked in a cooperative fashion. You know, so the problem is the packaging. So the governor has set a goal of keeping the, the state operating expend, expenditures to no more than a 2% increase. But as, as CBC has pointed out, and we certainly uh, concur, uh, that's been achieved by moving certain spending off budget. So it's not in the calculation. You know, so you get into the semantics of it all. Uh, the concern that we have moving forward uh, is that we have a, an increasingly limited debt capacity. We've, we've had too many instances in the past where debt has not been used for uh, the best and most appropriate purposes. Debt service is a rising cost, so when you're spending more money on debt service, less money to spend on current programs. So part of why the state has the gap that it has uh, going to this budget cycle is, you know, the state's made some big spending commitments. And, and, and the revenue hasn't matched with the expectation as far as the spending. We have gotten out of that if I could put it that way, over a number of years, because we benefited from these big settlement dollars that have come in. Um, but that's not a forever source or you know, a reliable source either. So, so now in 2018, uh, we have big spending commitments, out-year gaps that have been identified, vulnerability in terms of Washington and what the impact will be, ultimately, of federal changes, particularly with regard to health care. So I think it's a time to be more cautious, more cautious on spending, Take the opportunity when you can to build up those reserves. Manage debt more responsibly. Uh, my guess is when this budget is put together, again, because of the infusion of more money, some of that driven by the better bonus season that we've had uh, with Wall Street, uh, my guess is those issues and concerns will still be there when we're talking about the budget proposal for next year. So, you know, we issued a report this week about how the state should think about responding to the federal tax changes, and it, it identified really the cap on the state and local tax deduction as a key concern, and we've talked about it on the podcast repeatedly. Um, how do you think the state should approach any change it, it makes to the state tax policy in response to this, the federal tax law? You know, the, the, the federal tax change is really going to hurt us in New York and it hurt individuals. But I think the state needs to respond very carefully and very deliberately. The proposals that are on the table still need, I think, some very careful analysis. And I don't know that that's going to get done between now and April 1st or that it can get done. The notion of, of, of moving to a payroll tax instead of an income tax probably has a limited application, depending on where you set the thresholds. And I think it would be fair to say not everybody uh, is bought into that as a, an effective strategy. What might be of more interest and more broad application, although also with complexity, would be to allow local governments to set up these charitable trusts as a way to pay particularly for, for education costs instead of through, uh, through property taxes. The real sticking point there from my point of view is will the IRS sign off on it? Now, there are other programs that other states have on a much more limited basis to use donations to charitable trust to pay for education, but no state has done something as far-reaching as is being proposed. You know, given who's in charge in Washington, uh, if, if they view this as a way to go around the, you know, the federal changes that would hurt revenue going to Washington, my guess is that they won't allow it to happen, but who knows? So, so that could be a false hope. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think you know, my, I don't know how much, if any, of this will be resolved in this budget. We do need to look at it as, as a post-budget issue if it's not resolved right now. 
I'm not sure that there's any easy fix, though, with either of those, either of those solutions. And generally, I think you said in your remarks, and, and you seem to be indicating here, you're not necessarily taking a position. No, I ha- on we those. haven't. We haven't. Yeah, yeah. And, and you haven't evaluated those two two mechanisms. No, I mean, I, no, we've we've discussed them. In mm-hmm. um, obviously, it's the prerogative of the legislature, the governor, to to make the choice. And I give the governor credit for giving us some options to look at. Um, I'm not sure that any of those options will be workable or will have a far-reaching impact. Does the state have to do something here in the budget? I mean, you you just indicated it could be pushed out. We know that often once it's not in the budget, who knows what can happen with it, and then it might wait months till the end of the legislative session. But I think think that's actually a trend that I don't think is, is positive. More and more policy issues are rolled into the budget, and... You know, I guess the argument is you got you have everybody's attention, you know, because they, they, they want to close an overall deal. But I, I think the, the difficulty is that we do these big policy issues that are often decided at the very end of the budget process. Nobody knows who's even at the table making the decisions. There's certainly not an open airing of what, what the final options are that are being considered. And it does divert from looking at the budget from a purely budgetary perspective, you know, to the extent that we continue to have those out-year budget gaps, when you're closing down a budget, and I served in the legislature, I know there's a strong sense about deadline and and making sure you have a balanced budget for the next year, there is a short-termism that comes into play in thinking. And and one of the things that we try to do in the controls office is keep people focused on a longer-term perspective. So you have short-termism to begin with in the process, and then on top of it, you throw in these complicated policy issues that really aren't strictly budget issues, it, it, it's no surprise then that, that you get, um, you don't get a full airing of pros and cons. You don't get a public airing of what's being looked at. So I wouldn't be troubled if something like the tax consequences gets pushed to the off-budget period, because I would like to see us get back to a point where what happens between the budget being done in April and the legislature uh, adjourning in June, that, that that be a substantive period of time. Increasingly, people seem to be saying, oh, we'll get the budget done, and there's really nothing else to do, you know, and then we'll just get out of town in June, and it's like, well, that's not really what it should be. No, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, we've said, you know, caution and deliberation, and there's time here to come to an agreement in principle about what some of the approaches could be, and then time to deliberate and design something very thoughtfully. Um, I'll ask one more question. Sure, and then I'll have one more, yeah. can take it away. Um, But... You know, another major responsibility of the Comptroller's Office is the pension funds. And as you mentioned in your remarks, we're actually great in New York on that front. The pension fund for the state is almost fully funded, if not 100% funded. Um, you know, uh, Comptroller is the sole trustee. Um, you announced recently with the governor that there is going to be a decarbonization mm. advisory panel to shift some of the state's investments away from some carbon sources. Um, talk a little bit about how you manage or how you think about maintaining and preserving the chief you know, fiduciary role of the, of the controller's office to be uh, maximizing the returns while at the same time serving these, these you know, doing something socially responsible. Yeah. And, you know, someone like me worries about a slippery slope, yeah. right? Um, so how, where do you draw the line? How do you think about that? How do you maintain a balance? Yeah. It's a great question, and it is about the fiduciary obligations to the to the members of the fund, the, the, the retirees, the, the workers, and the beneficiaries, and that has to be the bottom line, getting a return. But particularly for a public pension fund, uh, I do think we have a responsibility to, um, whenever we can, achieve a double bottom line in terms of a positive outcome. And I am also of the belief that when you invest in companies or in business opportunities, that are, are good corporate citizens, have sound policies, whether it be on environment or social or governance issues, that for a pension fund, which is a long-term investor, we're a perpetual investor, uh, that notion of s- the sustainability investment is tied to how well uh, the entity you invest in manages its ESG uh, considerations, environment, social, and governance. There's a lot of talk about climate change, And I certainly subscribe to the notion that that is a big concern for all of us. It also is a material risk to the portfolio. And so we've incorporated a consideration of climate risk and climate change with our investments in a number of ways. Uh, Part of what we've tried to do is take advantage of the emerging companies and technologies in the green economy. And, and I support the Paris Agreement, and, and the world is moving, no matter what the president says, to a lower, lower carbon economy. 
we want to take advantage of some of those new jobs and new opportunities there. So part of our strategy is to invest more in that sector of the economy. Because we see uh, carbon, uh, because of regulatory changes that will be coming, probably a price on carbon that will come at some point, carbon-intensive uh, businesses are ones that, that propose a risk. So the notion of moving away from carbon-intensive industries, I, I think, is a smart one. The cry out there right now is for what they call divestment, mm -hmm. a notion that, you know, sell, sell all your, your uh, stock and fossil fuel companies, and that's how you advance this agenda. I respect people who have that opinion, but uh, the reality is the, the oil and gas companies are not going to go out of business if New York State sells uh, our, our, our shares. Someone else is going to buy them. Um, and in the short run, we've still been making money, and that's, again, our priority. And we've been using our leverage as a shareholder. And I'll just give one example. There are many others, but ExxonMobil, we, we took the lead on filing a resolution to say ExxonMobil, climate change is real, climate risk needs to be evaluated as part of your business plan. You haven't done that. We require you to do a report to deal with that. The first year we put that resolution forward, it lost with about 38% vote. Second time we put it up, we got a 62% vote because the attitude in the business community is changing. So I don't want to lose that leverage of getting these companies to be more responsible citizens on, on, on the uh, climate issue. So this task force that we set up with the governor is meant to look at the broad question. What else can the fund do to decarbonize our portfolio? What are some other opportunities, particularly in New York, to invest in green uh, investment opportunities? And, you know, not being afraid to look at that question, should we be reducing our holdings in fossil fuels? We don't have much in coal, but coal is an example. California has moved away from coal. We have very little there. Maybe we should have even less. So it's going to be a very thoughtful advisory task force. I want to make clear that I'm still the trustee for the fund. The decisions are mine. Uh, and again, keep in mind, the last point I'll make on this, much of our money is, is passively invested through index funds. So people say, oh, you're in all these fossil fuel companies. Well, it's because we buy into the indexes like everybody that is does. That isn't often misunderstood. It's a misunderstanding. Uh, anything we're actively yeah. trying to, you know, prop you up ExxonMobil, that's not really what we're doing. Right. Right. But perhaps in the same way you're saying you can be an influential invest exactly. investor, you can also, do, you can, you know, in some ways do that, yep. I'm sure, with the index funds. Yep. Um, we, well, we have our low emission index that we set up customized working with Goldman Sachs, which incentivizes uh, companies that are disclosing their carbon footprint and then moving to reduce it. So that you're absolutely right, and we have mm -hmm. been doing that as well. You would, uh, just before I get to my final question, you would acknowledge there's, there's some element of political philosophy involved there, right? I mean, the, not all people even just thinking about bottom line and long-term investments and short-term investments and return would come to the same conclusions, right? Because you do have to have a certain mindset yeah. about what you're doing. There. Yes. Yeah. But but it is that word of, of a balance, and um, you know one of the important factors that people realize. Although I'm sole fiduciary, sole trustee, I, I'm not sitting there in a vacuum making decisions. We have staff, including legal staff, that always remind us. You know, we need to keep in mind the fiduciary responsibility of the fund. So so it is striking, you know, that balance. And it happens on a lot of issues. Years ago, you know, the issue was South African investments there. Guns is a big issue right now. Uh, and, you know, after uh, Sandy Hook, we sold uh, the gun holdings we had at that time. Uh, uh, you know, and you know what happened, right? After that, the gun sales went way up. Yeah. Uh, you know, fortunately, that doesn't seem to be happening right now, and, and, and there is a change. But I don't think you can be totally agnostic about where, where your investments are going. Okay. Um, okay, so, so the last thing I just wanted to ask you about Comptroller Napoli is um, just, to, just a little bit more about where the state budget is in relation to New York City, because obviously CBC, Gotham Gazette, we're very you know, focused on New York City, although we obviously look at the state as well. Um, you indicated a little bit in your remarks that there's some elements of, of what's right now proposed and, and is being negotiated that has some tough impact on the city. Um, and then you also raised a little bit of a caution flag about how expanded executive power could also potentially be uh, used against New York City. You're obviously just looking at uh, precedent there to, yeah. to <laughs> read the tea leaves. But um, can you just talk a little bit more about how this potential state budget, um, you know, proposes risk for New York City. And do you agree with this 
the governor's sort of general sentiment that, you know, New York City finances are in better shape than the state, so it's sort of okay to offload some, some costs onto New York City. Well, there does seem to be a lot of interesting back and forth between the governor and the mayor of late, so I'll try to avoid, 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 avoid yeah. getting, uh, you know, between, uh, between those conversations. But, um, you know, there's no doubt that, the, particularly on education, which obviously is a big investment uh, for the city, What's in the proposed budget is less than what the city had anticipated. My expectation is that the city will that that will be enhanced because there is more money in education. That be, that becomes a closer, you know, for the suburban district, upstate districts as well as the city districts. Excuse me, probably a little more problematic is some of the social service uh, areas where. You know, you, you also have dispute about you know whether it's a cut, not a cut, whether the money was sent, the money wasn't sent. You know, I. I you know, I do think the city delegation, uh, led by the speaker, Carl Hasty, will look out for the interests of the city in terms of the bottom line. And it would be beneficial if, if, the, uh, if from the top of the city and state administration they recognize that they're serving the same people. It's in a mutual interest to, to come up with programs and funding that uh, are mutually supportive. Um, you know, finger pointing or trying to one-up is, is not going to help not going to help anybody. So I know, you know, we're in a political year, certainly for the state level, and just came off of one for the city level. You know, you'll never take politics out of government, despite what the purists may think or hope. But, you know, what, what we'll do when the budget is done, as we always do, we'll do our evaluation, certainly including the uh, impact on, on the city budget. But, um, uh, you know, my concern for the city, as it is for the state, um, you know, this economic expansion cannot go on forever. So the city may be impacted, uh, and the city, we have to recognize, it continues to be the key driver for the state's economy. When we look at the job creation statewide, you know, most of the jobs have been created in the boroughs. When you add in the Long Island suburbs, Westchester, Rockland, and Orange counties, over 90% of the new jobs that we've grown since the depths of recession have happened in those downstate areas, again, driven by the city. So the state needs the city to be strong economically and with the city finances. And the city's finances need to be strong for the city's economy to stay strong. So there's a lot of mutual interest here, um, which is why I think we need to get past some of the, you know, some of the stinging rhetoric that, that, that obscures the ability to come together. All right, lots more to discuss, but we'll leave it there. Thank you, uh, Comptroller DiNapoli, for taking a few more minutes with us after speaking uh, at the CBC breakfast. Thank you, Good to see you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.